Hello, my name is Annabelle Lee and welcome back to another episode of Talking Classical. I'm pleased to share a discussion that I recorded last month with Nina Brazier, an opera director who is currently on the staff at Oper Frankfurt in Germany. We talked about Nina's journey to becoming an opera director, the differences between the opera world and approaches to opera directing in Germany compared to the UK, some of her approaches to directing, what happens on an opening night and her role in that, and diversity and inclusion in the opera business. This is a fascinating discussion about what being an opera director entails, as well as wider issues within the opera industry. Many thanks to Nina for taking the time to talk to me, especially for this podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to this discussion with Nina. Bye for now. How did you become an opera director? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did it all start for you? Well, I guess in a way, I know a lot of people say this, but it was an accident. I'd first started a drama degree. I did a drama degree at Exeter University. So I was looking just at straight theatre and and directing itself kind of came in in my final semester. We did a, a term of directing and we started really small scale, little monologues. We were directing one another and then we were able to direct a duologue and then we could do like a small group scene. And I think the directing bug definitely set in then. And I just I just loved how how I was able to kind of bring the nuances of human conversation to life. And I was just, I mean, just trying things out and playing games and working with status and working with motivation and just kind of sort of drama schooly type things, I suppose. And and there was just one sharing that we had and it was a little duologue scene. And I just remember thinking and feeling when we had the sharing of it that all of us, and we were just a small group of young directors, were just kind of on the edges of our seat, just wanting to hear what they had to say. And these these girls who were performing weren't the sort of inverted commas actors of the year group, or they weren't sort of the, the people you're expecting to go onto the stage. But I just felt like I'd somehow helped enable them to bring something that kind of left us all wanting a bit more. And that that little moment, I mean, it was such a small little thing was definitely the kind of the directing bug I was like that's it that's that's what it is for me now and I mean I came out and was just sort of playing around on the fringe doing some assisting and I guess learning just sort of very low level assisting on fringe productions and then and then I I did a a course at the Royal Court Theatre for young directors and it was a group of young theatre directors and a friend of mine on that course Vicky had been assisting a theatre director called John Wright and he was about to do a contemporary opera he was about to direct a contemporary opera and she didn't read music and she was his sort of go-to assistant she couldn't do it so she just asked me Nina would you you know would you be up for it do you read music and I said yes I do and so she put John and I together and yeah and it went from there so the first opera that I experienced was actually this crazy insane contemporary opera by a composer called Paul Clark who was absolutely wonderful and I just was totally drawn in and captivated by this world of new music and it was I sort of didn't know what to expect because I didn't have an understanding of the genre 
at all. I didn't, I sort of didn't know what I was getting into. So I, I think I had no particular expectations of what it should be like. So I just sort of got drawn into that world and absolutely fell in love with it. So that was, I think that was my turning point where it was sort of not only the text that I'd grown to love when I was studying, but then also layering music on top of that, that was also already a big part of my life. Fantastic. So do you, you said that you can read music. So do you come from a musical background yourself as well? I mean, yes, yes and no. I'm, I come from Wales originally, which you don't necessarily hear in my accent. And we did have, when I was growing up, excellent music education in schools. So we had school and Wales being Wales, you are surrounded by music all the time. There's music in assemblies every day. There's, you know, groups of people singing. There's small groups singing. There's huge groups singing. There's people reciting. There's these Eisteddfods, these huge competitions that you'll have both in your school, both locally and nationally. So there is music. You're completely surrounded by music you just can't get away from it so I think that was very much part of my education part of my background and I learned sort of piano at home and then clarinet and violin at school and I think that was just always part of of my growing up my dad who actually didn't live with me but he was also a musician so I suppose it was always sort of part of my part of my world even though it wasn't necessarily what I was expecting to pursue professionally so so yes I do read music I mean I'm afraid I don't really play very much anymore but it was kind of always part of my world growing up. Fantastic so you said that you trained in the UK but you're currently based in Germany at the moment on the staff at Opera Frankfurt so what prompted you to go to Germany and do you notice that there is um are there any differences in the opera scene in Germany compared to the UK because a lot of people say that you know Germany is this great bastion for for opera I mean it's got something like 85 opera houses yeah yeah I mean my prompt first of all was I suppose a private one in a way I felt like I'd sort of begun my career in the UK in a in a quite a small way and I'd got to a point where I felt like I wasn't stepping up any further and I think this Mm -hmm. does happen to a lot of people particularly people who go in going hard on the assisting let's say so you end up doing quite a lot of assistant directing and then might do your own smaller scale work so I think I felt at a certain point that I'd come to I'd come to a point where I wasn't making the next step. I wasn't moving on. And I also happened to have married a German man in the in-between time. And I read when I was traveling at some point, I read an article from the New York Times saying that one third of the opera in the world was created in Germany. And they had all these statistics, like you were saying, of Germany having over 80 opera houses. And I think that the prompt for me was feeling like I didn't know where to go next in the UK. I didn't see what was next for me. And Looking at that in hindsight, I think, and I've talked with many sort of opera colleagues about this, that there is sort of a missing level in the UK, the sort of the mid-scale level that we don't have a lot of. So it does mean that at a certain point, there are a whole set of opportunities that do drop off. And there's a huge difference between the small scale work that goes on and even, you know, getting your work on in the Limbury. There's There's an enormous jump between those two places. So in hindsight, I think I would have perhaps been a bit kinder to myself 
so that the main problem was that and also I didn't speak any German I do have a bit of I have some other languages but I didn't have any a word really a word of German aside from what I'd learned to talk to my in-laws so I felt like what you know what a great way to to just move sideways to kind of maybe create a new opportunity to have a new outlook and see what this sort of land of milk and honey in, in the way that some people think of Germany as being and to have a look with have a look with a bit of new perspective so so I guess it was yeah it was a question of where I was in my career the the wish to learn the language and and to see if there really was a different perspective here in Germany and that that did take me some time and then the second part of your question, absolutely, the difference here is huge. Aside from the number of houses, and we're talking about, like you said, over, over 80, I think it's 83, publicly funded opera houses. And I guess looking at the funding model, even in the UK, I think we can count on one hand the, the opera houses that actually have houses that are publicly funded by Arts Council England and probably... On your other hand, you can probably count the other operatic institutions that are receiving funding that perhaps don't have a, an operatic house. So I guess the, the difference there is huge in terms of the amount of opera that is produced here in Germany. So I guess that's the main difference. And there is, I feel like here there is a sense of appreciation of the art form we don't get that sense of opera is dying out that we're also sort of terrified of in the UK that feeling of audiences are dying and we're not getting enough new audiences there is as far as I can tell I have not experienced that and children coming to the opera is totally the norm young adults coming to the opera is totally the norm of course the tickets are cheaper here yeah. on a on a scale and we're not offering as yet I think free tickets which I know some people in the UK are doing but our cheapest tickets I think here in house at the moment are 15 euros it doesn't it doesn't have the huge sort of elitism label that opera does suffer from in the UK I think there are still people there are still people that don't come to the opera here it's not to say that everyone comes that's not true but I think it doesn't suffer from that same elitism label in the way that it does in the UK I guess the other big differences in the system is we do primarily work here on what we call a fest system, which, of course, the UK doesn't any longer with having. I think we've got in-house with us here in Frankfurt. We've got 42 ensemble singers who are part of the house and they, of course, are allowed to go outside and do guest productions elsewhere, but they will be permanently employed by the house. They will be in all the productions and then we will hire in guest artists as well so I suppose that is a system a sort of nice solid system which I think as far as I know almost every house down to even the smallest ones will have a much smaller ensemble that we do so that that is very much part of the opera system here is having access to those fest singers and of course that comes with pluses and minuses of its own you know being a, a fest singer is you know isn't all isn't all roses either they have their challenges as well okay. but there are also lots of positive sides to being fully fully employed by a house so I think yeah it's it swings and roundabouts isn't it definitely definitely and in terms of opera staging as well would you say that there is almost a German school of opera 
I mean, yes, in a way, because of course we have this long history of Regie Theater here in yes. Germany. So, so these the ideas and the concepts that are presented on stage can be incredibly bold or incredibly abstract, and I guess often unapologetically so. And and what I've seen and heard here, I think, is that more often than not, audiences are really stimulated rather than repelled by that, which I think can sometimes be different in the UK. And I feel like that afterwards, they really take the opportunity to explore, to explore and to really delve into the questions of why something was staged in a particular way. And I, I don't know if it's fair to say, I feel like sometimes in the UK that that we can be a little bit more, and I'm definitely guilty of this as well, just of, of dismissing something face value and not really digging in. I mean, of course, you know, it can sometimes be incredibly extreme and baffling and unhelpful to the story. So I think you've got it. You've got it in different ways. There can be Regie Theater that's incredibly successful and really draws you into a piece. And there can be something that is totally baffling and excludes you. So I think in that way, but I guess that boldness and that clarity of ideas is really, is really embraced by, by the intendance, but also the German public in a way. And I feel like they're, they're very open to radical deeply radical stagings here in Germany and you know and they'll certainly let you know if they don't like it as well. For sure for sure and I think that that's so interesting because you're working on two Verdi operas at the moment which it looks like from what I've seen from the photos that they do have this element of Regé Theatre to them but I want to know a bit more about your approach to directing. So when you're given the commission to direct the opera, what's the first thing that you go to? Is it the text? Is it the story, the music, the set design? It's it's hard. I generally always start with the text and the story and the characters. The thread of that story is going through because I think without having that, I find it hard to build and find a world around that. So I would always go to the text, make sure I translate it hopefully perfectly to understand exactly the nuts and bolts of the story and the narrative that's being told. And for me, beyond that, of course, I like to live with the music and experience the music in in different ways. And I guess for me, my visual world is more informed by probably the outside world, by galleries and by museums. I think mostly my visual inspiration in terms of ever feeding into my conversations with designers will almost always come from the outside world or, you know, maybe just a tiny little idea that occurs to me when I'm in the shower or something, just doing everyday life. It's never, I tell you when the ideas never come and that's when I'm Googling something or like deep in some sort of technological world. That's not when my ideas come, my ideas come when I'm out and experiencing the world and the wider world and also sometimes reading actually not only not only sort of visual and aesthetic worlds but sometimes reading as well and that's that's normally when the kind of the nugget of an idea comes through and of course that will get nourished and developed with my conversation with a designer which of course happens very very early on but for me I think it's text first music is of course the next layer that I like to live with and breathe and learn and understand and And then it's finding that visual world and that visual language on top of that in a layer that, of course, becomes a deep conversation with the with the designer. But that's I mean, that's the way I begin it. I'm sure there are many people that that work music first or 
but that's that's the way I begin. And how do you get your singers to how do you get them to project out on on stage while also retaining I suppose the truth of their their characters because I imagine that's probably a bit of a a fine line to to try it isn't it yeah in, in terms of the sort of getting them to project your telling of the story exactly yeah. yeah 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 I think it is a tough one I mean I tend to be one of those people that over prepare and what what I tend to like to do in the rehearsal room and I know this is very different for different directors is I like to create a structure and a plan before I come into the room of exactly where that person is going to what the action is they're going to do what their journey is around the space and of course why so I always like to begin with an incredibly clear structure and geography around where that person is going what they're doing what their interaction is with another character and how they maybe leave the space as well so for me what I found with singers and I I think I learned this more when I was assisting because then you of course hear from the singers about what they'd actually like to be doing with the director and you hear a lot of and what I found is by creating a journey and whether that gets changed or not during the process of rehearsal is open I'm always open to changing that journey and being open to developing it in a way that works for a singer But for me, what I find is by creating a structure that it actually that a singer then then can then bed in to their under they already have hopefully the music and the text is already off by heart. So by creating a structure, it actually allows them the freedom because then by rehearsing it over and over again, they can bed in these journeys, these interactions, they can develop them and then they can bring it into something that is that is learned within the body that they have a sort of complete understanding of that journey. And that's to say, I mean, I like to prepare it that far in advance only because I think it then allows me freedom because I know that if I've if I've got that structure in place and if I've got that plan, that I know I can completely divert from that and always return to it if we find ourselves lost or we can find our, our way back into it. But I found often, because coming from a theatre background where we're often encouraged to improvise let's say a lot more and that way you can sort of layer and learn and learn your layering of the text in that way I think with singers from my experience if you improvise and continue to improvise then they will have in their head the music five different versions of the staging and needing to contact the conductor and needing to negotiate the space or whatever that is so for me I try and find that freedom by finding a structure and I don't want to bang on about the idea of structure but it's just finding a shape through the scene and by bedding that in allowing them the freedom to explore that and to make sure that works for them of course there are singers who are brilliant actors who will bring you know who will have their own ideas and I'm always completely open to that and if they feel strongly that they need to enter from a specific place then I'm always happy to try out people's ideas you know depending on the time we have available to us so I think it's for me it's having that that system in place but also being open and I feel like from from what I understand from the singers that I've worked with that that giving a clear geography does really help them to fit, to find that freedom in the way that they're performing on the stage. I suppose one of the analogies that you can make is like 
tennis or football where you have to have the rules in place you have to have the structures and then once you realize what the rules are then you're free to you know bend the rules I suppose and you know play for the 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 sportsmen to play freely within the game if you know what I mean yeah exactly I think that's a perfect a perfect example of it it's having then it does hopefully allow that freedom and I'm totally open anyone can contact me and say actually Nina that's the most terrible thing anyone's ever done for me but I found that it's helped me and it's helped often singers that I'm working with and particularly if you're working with a very in a very short period of time yeah yeah and what about restagings of productions which I know that you're currently doing at the moment so how much of your own personal input do you get into these restagings or do you have to I suppose follow what the director has done and then do a a copy of that Um, yeah I mean it's it's hard and it is always difficult finding that balance and for me being I'm fairly recently to this role at Frankfurt and you know of course within that I get to stage a lot of productions that I wasn't there the first time round. so I've done a handful of productions that I never saw live let's say so there is a huge challenge to that I think you do need to out of respect to the original team to stay loyal to that production and to yeah. bring that production to life in the way that they first intended it so I think that is that is for me important and I will try to you know I would always try to kind of abide by their sort of staging rules and keep keep in that world but of course the other thing that you will find is that your stage is then animated by an entirely new cast who have a new set of ideas about the role who will have their own sort of take on the role and and who will inevitably bring their own lived experience into into the role so I guess it's a question of shaping it in a way that's loyal to the original but allowing these performers to inhabit the roles in a way that they would have done if they had been there the first time round so I think it's really about creating that balance and it's you know it's funny it's often a bit of a jigsaw puzzle I've had a couple of revivals that I've that I've directed that have been incredibly dark so I'm watching them on DVD and they'll they'll be you know gauzes in front of the main action and I'll be reading perhaps two different regiebücher looking at the at the director's scores trying to work out the kind of jigsaw puzzle of what's going on they're writing their descriptions so you'll try to work out you know the understanding of the background of the motivation or any bits of information that you can cling on to to help these help the new artists that are having to animate these roles and what for us here is a huge help actually is we have these the program booklets which I can't remember if I mean I never staged a big revival in the UK in the same way but when I go back to the program books here they're hugely helpful in terms of the director's thinking the designer's thinking the background of the characters so that can offer a huge insight into the way the staging is and of course I mean on a practical level you do have to stay loyal perhaps to the you know to the lighting and to the staging so that everything happens that the structure is there as it was originally. And what's very hard, actually, is when when singers come and they say, look, the thing is, I just don't understand why I'm doing this. I don't understand why I'm doing this. And and sometimes I have a handful of ideas that I think, oh, well, it could, you know, that I could say, well, to me, it means this or it could mean this. And sometimes there'll sort of be a selection of ideas that we might try to explore that it could, you know, it could mean for them. And then 
when you're getting desperate, you can talk to the dramaturg who was on the production originally, who might be able to give you some better insight and, you know, diving through that, that program booklet to help you understand what the original ideas were. So yeah, it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, to be honest. Yeah. Always, always a constant challenge, I imagine. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, and tell me about the process of what it's like when you're in the audience, say watching a first night of a production that you are directing or that you're restaging what emotions do you feel how do you feel about the process of letting go and just letting the production happen or are you very much involved in I suppose the behind the scenes are you in the wings you know getting involved really good question it actually depends so here when we when we direct revivals here our duty on the night, unlike the role in the UK, is we have to be backstage. Oh, so we we have Abendspielleitung, which would be the equivalent of show duty. Now, show duty in the UK would mean, and I used to think this was fantastic and I miss it greatly, is you sit in the audience and you're basically, you're kind of quality control, you're kind of taking notes if things go wrong or if anything looks strange on the set or things don't quite work so you'd perhaps be taking a couple of notes and you'd be able to feed those back in for the next performance and if if the singers are kind of going a bit off piste in terms of the staging you can kind of rein that back in here in Germany and I think this is the case in all the houses but I'm not totally certain in Germany the role of the Abendspielleiter or doing the Abendspielleiter and the show duty you're you're backstage because here we don't have you don't have a load of people backstage. Of course, you've got the technical teams and the crew and you've got one DSM, but there's not ASMs running the wings. So assistant mm-hmm. stage managers running the wings in the way that you'd have in the UK. So all the entrances are given by lights instead of by a person saying, you know, stand by and go. So you're the kind of backstage link in case anything goes wrong. So I do miss that kind of show duty from the UK. So on an opening night of my revival, unfortunately, I would almost always be backstage. So I would I would miss it. But you can, of course, see that hopefully view the action either from the side of the stage or you can watch it on a monitor. And to be honest, and if it's my own work on a first night, my heart is always in my mouth because I think there is that feeling of letting go and there is that feeling of sort of you come in early you give all your little toy 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 gifts or cards you you give all the notes you try to get through everything that can possibly be given whether that's technical or to the singers or you know whatever it is and there's literally nothing else you can do it's not in yeah. your hands it's any like longer preparing for an exam isn't it It's totally preparing for an exam and it's really hard. I had a a lovely assistant back in the summer and she she used to say, you can only control what you can control. And I thought that was so useful because on an opening night, there's you can't control anything anymore. When you're in the audience more so than anything, there's nothing you can do now aside from run backstage and have a panic attack or, Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I think is that that feeling of letting go. And it feels like there are always for me, there are moments of little little wins and little loses. If there's something you've been asking for and asking for and asking for in rehearsal, but you've never seen, you know, and then suddenly on opening night, there it is on the stage. That's always like a little win and a little joy. And there's, of course, inevitably the little things that go wrong or major things that go wrong. And it it feels like a stab to the heart. You know, it feels like it's your personal fault that you haven't rehearsed that to such a level that it's totally perfect. So I think there's always hugely mixed emotions. I've had opening nights where I've 
cried afterwards or in the interval I've had opening nights where I've been elated and generally it's funny because I think you have that feeling really until when it's all over and that you're with your cast with your company with a drink in hand and then you kind of go through everything everything that went wrong everything that went right and then actually it's for me I only feel better after having kind of talked it through with everyone involved And I guess you sort of process it in that way and you come to terms with it if something did go wrong or you celebrate it if it went fabulously or, you know, generally it's always a mixture. But it's it is a heart in mouth. And I have met some people, some designers and some directors that never go to their own opening nights, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. Let's finish off by just talking about something that I know you're very passionate about, as you mentioned in your podcast, opera in classical music can often be very much the privilege of people who went to public school. I know that you went to a state school. What can be done in order to further accessibility within the opera business, particularly for people who perhaps might not otherwise have the opportunity to enter the industry as easily compared to their public school counterparts? Yeah, I think it's such a difficult question. And I feel like it's a question that the opera world has kind of been banging its head against the wall about for such a long time. And I think there is no easy answer to this one. And I feel like opera companies in the UK are throwing their doors open wide and saying, come in, come and join us, come and you belong here too. And they want to say that to everyone. And I think... I think the issue is that there are people out there from different backgrounds who who feel that it doesn't belong to them. Why should it belong to them? It was never introduced to them. It was never part of their world. And why should they step through the doors and come and enjoy something? And I feel like it it has to go back. Doesn't it have to go back to primary education? I feel like I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but I feel like the opera companies are throwing their doors open. They're throwing their arms open wide and doing their best to reach as many people as they possibly can. And it's about going right back to primary education and letting people know in the first place that it exists. People just simply don't know that it exists. Quite a few years back, I was running opera workshops with primary school children who'd never even been to the theatre, let alone knew what opera was or knew that it existed. And I feel like there's so much to to explore there. I mean, this obviously the ongoing cutting of music music education in schools is totally debilitating. And opera, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to music education in schools, opera is also at the bottom of that list, if on that list at all. So I think I feel like in a way the opera companies aren't themselves accountable. It's it has to happen earlier on in people's lives in that space so it goes back to music education in schools to opera education in schools to to demystifying the art form to feel like it's not only for the privileged few and I think that's that's what's wonderful I think about making the art form is that is that it's not it's not hopefully only let's say public school people who are making it you know talent comes in many different forms and it can be found thank goodness in people from all different backgrounds it's harder and it's more difficult and and it's harder to find the money to educate these people but I think with talent hopefully it is possible so I think it goes back to primary school education and for the opera companies to continue throwing those doors open opening their arms wide and making sure people feel like it is allowed for them and they do belong there too and it's it's 
I mean, it's a hard hill to climb and, and I, I don't have the answers. I think Opera UK, Engender, iOpera, everyone's trying to do a lot of work to, to help that access and yeah, onwards and upwards. Definitely. And I also feel it would really help if we had a government, particularly here in the UK, that had people who were really supportive of classical music. Whereas I think in Germany, I know you said, we were saying earlier, you know, it's very widespread in Germany, you know, Angela Merkel seems to be very supportive of arts and culture. I do feel like here, just in society in general, there does feel to be a more general appreciation of the classical world, just embedded from a very young age. Every child will have heard of the magic flute, every child, without a doubt. Yeah. Which is a nice, a nice beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What is your favourite thing about the opera business and perhaps more generally the classical music business what is the thing that you love most the best thing about music is that it can belong to everyone wherever people have come from whatever background they come from it's for all of us and I feel like music and opera specifically I mean opera just offers us a heightened portrayal of human emotions and I feel like we just don't get that anywhere else and it's also for me perhaps one of the only times where I switch off all my devices for over three hours and just focus on one thing on the stage and I think in this day and age that's completely magical yeah that's that's fantastic it's been so fantastic talking to you Nina thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me thank you oh it was absolutely my pleasure Annabelle thank you for having me what a joy